0: It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's smart money podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. The two things that everybody seemed to agree were weighing down the markets were the Fed and their relentless drive to normalize interest rates and figure out where normal was, however far above uh, the current rate normal was, and, of course, the trade war and the threat of additional tariffs that were overhanging the markets. And so I think it was pretty clear to Donald Trump, who is really uh, you know hanging his hat, on the stock market has already decided that the stock market is the best barometer of his presidency and all of the wealth that is the result of an increasing stock market. So the fact that the stock market was falling was obviously a big problem for the president. And so he had to do what he could to try to uh, get the stock market to go back up. And so I think the first part of that uh, and the two prong attack was the interest rates and Whether he was able to convince Powell to change his tune, you know, kind of get his mind right, cool hand Luke style, or whether he just got lucky and the Fed decided to backtrack. But as I mentioned in my last podcasts, the Fed has now said that we are just below normal, meaning that we only need one more rate hike before we get to normal, whereas in the past the Fed had Uh, basically said that normal was still quite a ways away and that the Fed would have to raise rates many, many more times in order to achieve normal. And of course, anybody who knows anything about the history of interest rates would have to agree that where we are now at 2% is historically abnormal and obviously could not be considered neutral based on any kind of past precedent. So the fact that the Fed was able to backtrack so quickly really threw the market a bone that the market and Donald Trump ba- you know, badly needed. But the other factor that was weighing down the market was all the trade tensions and all the talk about the tariffs that were going to be imposed in less than a month. The first of uh, next year, we were going to get these 25% across-the-board tariffs. And remember, on my last podcast, podcast, I said that I did not think that those tariffs would ever actually happen, that it was all just a bluff, right? That Donald Trump had no intention of imposing those tariffs, but he would have to come up with a a face-saving way out of it. And basically, that is exactly what the president did over the weekend, basically uh, giving the markets and the economy a Hanukkah present by calling off the uh, the tariffs. In fact, the date of the imposition of those tariffs has not been completely called off. It's just been postponed for 90 days. But this is just the beginning of the end of those tariffs. I mean, if they didn't impose them in January, they're not going to impose them in April. I mean, first, you're just going to delay it. You're going to kick the can down the road. But ultimately... It's never going to happen because in April, I think the president's going to have a lot more to worry about. The economy will be substantially weaker by then. Who knows? Maybe we'll be in a recession. There'll be a lot more unemployment. You know, I was just reading this story today. Um, I think it was JP Morgan was speculating that Ford was going to have to announce 25,000 layoffs in its restructuring to add to the layoffs from General Motors. But I think the economy is going to continue to weaken the fact that the uh, tariffs are not going to come into effect and the fact that the Fed isn't going to hike rates potentially more than the hike in December may be enough to temporarily boost the markets, but it's not going to change the downward momentum that already exists in the U.S. economy. But the reason, again, that I knew that Trump was not going to impose these tariffs on that January 1st deadline was because I understand how much damage those tariffs would do to an already weakening US economy. You know, and, and so why would he want to push an economy That's already going downhill. Why would he want it to go downhill even faster? But of course he can't admit that. But I think the Chinese understand this. I think the Chinese know that it's an empty threat. We're basically threatening to shoot ourselves in the head. And the Chinese are calling our bluff. Now, of course, the Chinese know they have to allow the president to look good. So they come to some kind of a deal, which amounts to nothing. And yet Donald Trump is out there tweeting and talking about how this deal that he supposedly negotiated with China, right, mano a mano, you know, over dinner and drinks or whatever they were doing down there. But this deal, supposedly, according to Trump, is one of the biggest trade deals ever negotiated. Yeah, It's not even negotiated where? In in, in his mind? The Chinese agreed to nothing. Nothing has been accomplished. All they did is agree to uh, to, to negotiate, but no points have been agreed to. Now, apparently, the Chinese have agreed to buy a lot of U.S. products. How much they didn't say. Just a lot of U.S. products. They didn't identify the specific products, but you know, a broad range of products. You know, agricultural products, uh, energy products, stuff like that. There's no particular time period uh, during which these products are going to be purchased. But they basically said that they will purchase a unspecified quantity of an unspecified list of products over an unspecified time period. And Donald Trump says, fantastic, we got this great deal. They don't have anything. The Chinese have not agreed to do anything that they weren't already doing. I mean, obviously, the Chinese buy a lot of American exports. I mean, they buy a lot of our agricultural products. I mean, so there are products that the Chinese are buying anyway, and so they're going to keep buying those products. I mean, what have we accomplished? Now, yes, China did agree not to impose any additional tariffs on American products during this negotiating period, but they were never going to do that anyway. I mean, the only reason that they're imposing tariffs is because Trump started the trade war. You know, basically what Trump is doing, is Trump told the American economy, the American consumers, you know, I'm going to punch you guys in the face on January 1st, right? And so now, you know, nobody wants to get punched in the face, so everybody is, you know, upset that they're going to get punched in the face. And now Donald Trump decides that, you know what, I'm not going to punch you in the face on January. I'm going to give you 90 days. I'm going to punch you in the face maybe uh, in April, Well, which is Good news, right? I mean, if I'm going to get punched in the face, I'd rather get punched in the face 90 days later than punched in the face now. So, yes, I mean, Donald Trump could claim credit for the fact that he's not punching us in the face on January 1st, that he may punch us in April, although he may not, but he's definitely not going to punch us on January 1st. But it's hard to take credit for that because you're the one that made the threat. So you can't really take credit for not following through with your own threat. But that really is, in effect, what he's trying to do. You know, we've got this deal that averts a a crisis that was of our own making. But it's not even really a deal because nothing has been agreed to. But again, Donald Trump describes this as one of the greatest deals ever, which again is par for the course for the Trump presidency. Everything he does is the best, is the greatest even if it's nothing. That's why he says that we have the greatest economy in the history of the country. Why? Well, because that's what he believes, because he's the greatest president, obviously, in the history of the country. And so therefore, the economy must be the greatest in the history of the country. He's the greatest negotiator that ever existed. And so whatever he negotiates has got to be the greatest. And so we've got the greatest trade deal. You know, the USMCA, right? This is a fantastic deal, even though it's virtually the same as the NAFTA deal that we got rid of. But, you know, he wants to make sure that we, we don't realize that. So we have to change the name. And so even though we had a really cool name before and now we have a lousy name, uh, we have to use this lousy name so we can pretend that we got rid of NAFTA and replaced it with something that's so much better. When, in fact, you know, we've got the same deal just tweaked a little bit. But if you didn't like NAFTA, then you won't like the USMCA. If you like NAFTA, then maybe you'll like the USMCA, although parts of it are not as good, and maybe some parts of it were improved. But overall, it's basically the same deal. So all the people that hated NAFTA should hate this, and all the people that love NAFTA should love this. I mean, basically. Uh, but no, not Donald Trump. Donald Trump hated NAFTA because he didn't negotiate that one. That was negotiated by some idiot. He negotiated the US, USMCA, and since he's a genius... Right. Well, then this is a great deal. But this is all form over substance. But it is not going to work. It's not going to save the markets. It's not going to save the economy. Remember, I said that if the Fed backtracked on its rate cuts and if we got some you know, diffusion of the ticking trade time bomb, that the markets could rally on that. And that's, in fact, what's happened. But I don't think the rally is going to be sustainable. That would be my guess. I think this is still a bear market rally. In fact, the Dow was up about 500 points or over 500 points in the pre-market. I'm not sure if it was ever up 500 points after they rang the opening bell, but it was up better than 450. I forget exactly what the, the intraday high was, but... That was about it. I mean, we made the highs early in the day, and then we sold off, and the Dow closed up 287. Still a big rally, but, you know, not that huge. And, you know, the NASDAQ was up a little bit more, 110 points. Russell 2000 was up. But again, the move was only about 1%. This was not that... Big a move. In fact, gold stocks are up more uh, than the Nasdaq or the uh, or, or the Russell 2000 or the Dow. Although gold stocks didn't make that big a move, I mean, gold was up I don't know ten bucks or so on the day. I really think gold should have moved a lot more on the news, not just the news of the trade tensions uh, diminishing, but particularly uh, the the Federal Reserve and the idea that we're going to get fewer rate hikes than everybody thought. So I don't know. I'm not really sure what that means for the short term for gold. Maybe we'll get another bit of pullback because we've got a lot of good news for gold. Gold should be more than $1,230 an ounce. Now, I know part of the reason that I think gold is not getting a bigger a move is because of the excitement in the stock markets. And so that I think is is taking a lot of demand away from gold because gold is not, you know, maybe seen as a hedge against a weak stock market. And so the fact that the stock market is so strong, uh, that's kind of, I think putting a damper on gold. But if we get, a pullback now in the stock market, which we could easily do, then I think that could really unleash the pent-up demand for gold once people see that the U.S. stock market is still going down, uh, that these um, bones that were thrown by Trump and the Fed uh, are not enough. Then I think you could see a lot more money coming into, into gold. But the media, again, is all over this deal as if something substantial has actually happened. Nothing has happened. Now, yes, there is some talk that the two parties will get together and negotiate to try to reduce tariffs or eliminate tariffs, which would be great if we could eliminate all the tariffs. But it's never going to happen. You know, ironically, I was reading just last week, I think Congress has passed or has worked on it. It's going to pass, right? They kind of got some of the bugs out of it. But a $400 billion Farm bill, agricultural bill, $400 billion. And I'm sure Donald Trump is going to sign this $400 billion subsidy to U.S. farmers. Now, how are we going to remove the tariffs and remove government subsidies if we're going to give this huge subsidy to American farmers? I mean, what what does Donald Trump think that is? I keep saying if you live in a glass White House, you can't throw stones and we have all sorts of subsidies that we give to our industries. We have all sorts of protective tariffs that are not going to go away. And, you know, if we can't get rid of our tariffs, if we can't get rid of our subsidies, when, you know, we've got this democracy where we have all these special interests and all this money and all these people voting, if we can't get rid of it here, well, obviously, they're, they're not going to get rid of it in China. And, of course, you know, the reason we have a trade deficit in China is not because the Chinese have tariffs or the Chinese have subsidies. Yes, they do. All countries do, unfortunately, uh, and we do too. And we're not going to get rid of them uh, for the obvious political reasons. So the fact that we're saying that we're going to have a negotiation about getting rid of tariffs, none of it's going to happen. But even if it did happen, it's not going to take away the U.S. trade deficit. You know, And when you look at the fact that we're trying to force the Chinese, right, to buy American products, to, to have some kind of commitment to the number of U.S. products they're going to buy, how can China do that? I mean, the Chinese government doesn't buy that much stuff. I mean, I suppose if you're spending government money on things that the government needs, then maybe the government could obligate itself to make certain purchases. But how can the Chinese government obligate – Chinese consumers to buy anything or Chinese private businesses. I mean, China is not, you know, an old fashioned dictatorship, communist country. You've got all sorts of free market capitalism going on. Most of the products that are imported by the Chinese are imported privately. They're not imported by the government. These are private companies deciding what they want based on the demand they're getting from individual private consumers. And so the Chinese government can no more force Chinese consumers to buy American products than the U.S. government could force American consumers to buy Chinese products. Consumers buy the products they want. Now, yes, the U.S. government can make it more expensive to buy imported products with tariffs. But at the end of the day, consumers still choose if they want to pay the tariffs and buy those products. Same thing in China. The Chinese government cannot force Chinese citizens to buy U.S. products if they don't want to. Right. If 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 we want the Chinese to buy American products and we need to manufacture products that the Chinese want to buy, the problem is we don't do it. Now, yes, we do grow food products that the Chinese want to buy. That's why we we, we are able to export food. But, you know, we can't balance our trade. We can't pay for all of the high value manufactured goods that we import with just some food that we grow on the farm. It's not going to do it. You know, it, it makes a dent in it. But it's not going to take care of it the only thing that ultimately i think is going to take care of the trade deficit is going to be the collapsing dollar that's what's going to do it it's going to be because imported products get so expensive that Americans aren't going to be able to buy them anymore. I mean, that's what's going to put an end to it. And when our trading partners decide that they no longer want to participate in this shell game, you know, they don't want to vendor finance the U.S. consumer indefinitely. They don't want to continue to supply us with products that we can't afford to buy, that we can't pay for with exports. And the danger of you know launching the trade war is that we cause our trading partners to come to their senses sooner. Right to force them, or, or where they finally have an epiphany and they decide to stop throwing good money after bad. I mean, if we want to continue this bubble economy, we need to convince our trading partners to throw as much bad money as possible right down this rat hole, right, and just keep making that mistake of feeding it and feeding it because they don't want to acknowledge the mistake that they've made. They to get trapped in that mindset where they, you know, like the. Uh, the, the banks that had had all these bad debts to Latin America, right? They don't, the banks don't want to write off the debt because they don't want to admit that the debts are bad. So they continue to extend credit so that they can pretend that the debts are good, even though they're not good, but they have to keep losing more and more money to avoid, you know, paying the piper and admitting the truth. So if we can do something to get the Chinese to do the right thing sooner, then it's good for China. It's not going to be good for this bubble economy if what your goal is is to sustain it and to keep it going And if your goal is to get reelected, which is what Donald Trump's goal is, it's not going to work. Now I talked, too about you know the Jones Act, which is uh, the law that requires all the goods that are that are shipped uh, between US ports to be carried on. US flag ships uh, that have built in the US that have US crews I mean this is such an uncompetitive, um, piece of legislation that we don't want to get rid of because certain industries, small segments of the population benefit from it. Right? We're not going to get rid of that. It would be great for our economy if we got rid of that. But I mean, obviously, any country that we're negotiating with trying to have a free trade and drop all the subsidies, we'd have to get rid of that. I mentioned too about the airlines. I mean, that's something that really bothers me. I don't know. Uh, I, I mentioned it, I think on a prior podcast, but I might as well mention it again because not everybody listens to all the podcasts. And I don't know how many people even realize that, but that foreign carriers are not allowed to pick up Americans in one U.S. port and drop them off in another. I mean, you could have, uh, you know, like a, uh, Singapore Airlines, I mean, it can fly people from New York to Singapore. It could fly people from LA to Singapore. It could sell those tickets. But what it can't do is sell a ticket from New York to LA, even if it's the same plane. So if you have a Singapore Airlines plane that starts off in New York, picks up passengers, flies to LA, and picks up more passengers, and then flies to Singapore, what it can't do is sell the first leg. It can't sell a ticket to a passenger who wants to get on in New York and get off in L.A. So if you think about an airplane, let's assume that this is a gigantic airplane and maybe that it, it seats 400 people, right? And let's say 200 of those people get on in New York and another 200 get on in L.A., right? So it starts out in New York. That means when it's flying from New York to L.A., half the plane is empty, Now, why can't it sell those seats? I mean, these are beautiful seats on these international carriers. I mean, they're much better than what seats you could buy on a domestic carrier. So, And there's all these people that want to go from New York to Los Angeles, and you've got this gigantic plane that's flying half empty. Why can't they sell these tickets? Because the U.S. government won't let them. Why won't they let them? Because they want to protect the domestic airline industry. This does not benefit the consumer. In fact, think about the environmental aspects of this, right? Because we're wasting all this energy. Whatever type of environmental pollutants you think air travel uh, causes. And obviously, you know, we have to use fossil fuel. We have to use uh, jet fuel uh, to fly these planes. So we have government rules that require us to waste energy, to fly planes half empty so that we can protect the profits of some domestic carriers and prevent competition right to limit competition so this is going on all over the US economy not just flat out you know subsidies or uh, or tariffs where you can actually see the cost but there is no dollar cost right where the US government just prohibits foreign carriers from transporting domestic passengers, there's no line item for that in the budget. You can't actually see the cost because nobody has actually handed any money. The cost is in higher air costs for American travelers, right? You have fewer options, fewer flights available, and you have to pay higher prices for the tickets that you buy. And of course, the quality suffers. The quality is not as good as it would be if there was more airlines competing for American uh, dollars. We got some more negative news out today on construction spending, which obviously is related to the housing market. We got the third consecutive monthly decline in construction spending. They were looking for a small bounce, and we went down again. And in fact, they revised the previous months lower as well. And I think the only reason that it wasn't worse, that the drop in construction spending wasn't even greater, was because of a Increase in construction on government-funded a uh, project like you know um, m- maybe lower-income uh, type housing projects that were being paid for with tax dollars, or more appropriately, not just tax dollars, but with borrowed money. Right? We have to because the government is is running at a deficit, so any money the government is spending, the government is borrowing. By the way, that applies again. You know, we had a a 7.0 magnitude earthquake up in, in Alaska. And as soon as that happens, of course, Donald Trump wants to show how compassionate he is. And he basically tweets out, don't worry, you know, an unlimited amount of money is coming your way. We've got an open checkbook and we're going to spend whatever it takes to make sure that the good people of uh, of Alaska are taken care of, you know, in their time of need. First of all, this is not what the U.S. government is about. Right? The, the U.S. government is not there to provide disaster relief for every single emergency that comes up in every state of the union. I mean, individual states are supposed to take care of themselves. I mean, that was the whole idea behind the, the Republic and the Constitution. And for a long, long time, that is exactly the way it worked. Although now, vote-seeking politicians can help but play Santa Claus and show up anywhere there's a natural disaster and give out money as if the money is coming from heaven. The money just comes from the taxpayers. This is all redistribution. This is the government taking money from some people in one state and giving it to people in other states. Exactly what the Constitution prohibits. But this is what we're doing. But at the end of the day, we're all made poor because every state has a disaster somewhere. California has fires or earthquakes or there's hurricanes here. There's tornadoes there. There's floods there and everybody just ends up bailing out everybody else but it ends up costing everybody more money when you take away the local responsibility and the personal responsibility if everybody believes the federal government is going to take care of every emergency well then nobody is prepared and of course the local governments have an incentive to inflate the costs of the natural disasters So they can get more federal dollars. I mean, that's what's going on here in Puerto Rico. I thought I mentioned this, but, you know, the Puerto Rican government, one of the things they did recently is they imposed a $15 minimum wage for construction workers in Puerto Rico, which is very high because the average Puerto Rican earns a lot less uh, than the average American in the the 50 states. And so a $15 minimum wage in Puerto Rico is kind of like a $30 minimum wage in the U.S., But the reason that they want to do this is they are deliberately trying to drive up the cost of construction in Puerto Rico because they're getting this government money to help them because of the disaster relief from Hurricane Maria, help them rebuild. And the money that's coming in from the federal government, well, it's a function of the cost. How much is the construction going to cost? So to the extent that they can raise the cost of construction, they can get more federal tax dollars. See, if this Puerto Rico was spending their own money, Right? They would try to be efficient with the money that they were spending right? because they'd have to budget it in. they they try to get a good deal. But instead, they want to spend as much as possible. They want to dole out a bunch of money to Puerto Rican construction workers and get it all from the U.S. taxpayer. But, I mean, this kind of stuff goes on all over the country. Everybody is trying to milk the federal government because they're not paying for it. Every local politician wants to get as much federal money into their district as possible. But remember, everybody pays federal taxes in the 50 states. And so if California is trying to steal money from Alaska, Alaska is trying to steal money from California. And then Florida is trying to steal money from Alaska and California. And both those states try to steal money from Florida. At the end of the day, everybody who's stealing is getting stolen from. So everybody is picking everybody else's pocket while their pocket is being picked. But the problem is the pickpocket takes a cut. We're all poorer. Every time we have to run all of our money through the Washington, you know, money mill, we don't get as much back out. Right? It's like my, my blood transfusion analogy. We keep giving ourselves blood transfusions, you know, from one part of our body to the next, but we keep spilling all this blood on the floor. The spilt blood represents the cost of the government. At the end of the day, we're gonna bleed ourselves to death. So we shouldn't even have uh, the government involved in these. Uh, natural disasters the individual states should take care of it and to the extent that people want to donate money if somebody in California wants to help pay for uh, a disaster in Alaska they're free to write a check I mean that's what private charity is all about I don't want the government stealing money on behalf of uh, some people and giving it to somebody else I want people to give freely to give voluntarily uh, of their own money. That's that's what it means to be free. That's what it means to live in a free country, right? Where charity is not enforced at the point of a gun, right? It's done. It's voluntarily uh, voluntary contributions from one free person to another. But the other reason, of course, that I don't want the federal government sending money to Alaska or any place else is because the federal government doesn't have it. When Donald Trump says that the federal government is here, we've got all this money. No, we don't. The federal government is broke. We're running huge deficits. So now if we're going to have to spend extra money on helping Alaska rebuild from an earthquake, where's that money going to come from? It has to be borrowed. We don't have it. right? So Alaska doesn't have anything saved for a rainy day or an earthquake in theory. Well, neither does the U.S. government. So, we have to go to countries like China and we have to borrow the money so that we can then dole it out uh, to Alaska or any other state uh, that has a natural disaster. We also got some interesting uh, cryptocurrency news over the weekend. I saw that Floyd Mayweather, you know, Floyd Money Mayweather, for a while he was referring to himself as Floyd Crypto Mayweather because he, along with a lot of other high profile, Uh, athletes or some celebrities began endorsing these ICOs, right? They were getting paid to pump up these ICOs on their Instagram pages or Twitter pages, knowing that their followers would just go in and and buy them. Now, of course, this is all illegal, right? Especially if you're considering these uh, ICOs to be securities, if you're being paid to promote a security i mean that needs to be disclosed there's all sorts of uh, regulations and rules that these guys were violating and so now they're all agreeing to pay fines that are well exceed the money that they were paid to hype up these um these icos now i'm not sure because i didn't read if any of these guys actually bought into this very icos and then after they pumped them up dumped them so i don't know if they had any extra profits associated with their their pumping, or if they just took the money and pumped and and never actually, you know, front run the trades, that would have been worse, right? If you bought into a a particular coin and then touted it and then sold into the hype that you generated and made additional money, that would probably be worse or would be worse than simply getting paid to promote it. But this is just the beginning of the prosecutions that are going to ultimately flow as the air comes out of this bubble. And we're not even close because remember, there's still a lot of hope out there. All the people out in crypto land, they still think that the market's coming back. You know, they think, hey, 3500 was the low. It's not the low. It may be a low on the way lower. I said I think we're probably in a trading range now for a while, maybe not a long while, but just long enough to create a false sense of hope to sucker some new longs into the market so the smart money can bail out. In fact, as I'm speaking again, Bitcoin is trading around 3850 to 3900. We did get up to, I think, 4200 again over the weekend, or maybe a little higher. Uh, And then this morning we got down into 3700s. So we're still in this range. I think 3500 on the low end, uh, 4500 maybe on the high end. Maybe we have a range that large. But I think the range will probably compress to the downside because I do think that the people that want out at this point. Probably have a lot more motivation to get out uh, than the people who want to get in. I think the people who are in maybe are hoping that the market goes up, but I don't know that they actually have a lot of additional money that they want to put behind that hope. Uh, I think they just want to you know st- you know stay pat and just hope the market goes up. But you know if you look at a lot of the other. Cryptocurrencies that are really getting clobbered. Look at this one, EOS, because there's a lot of guys here in Puerto Rico that are into EOS because that's Brock Pierce, you know, was part of that. And he's, you know, the Messiah that came down here with a lot of other crypto guys. And so a lot of guys are into EOS. And EOS had a big run. You know, I remember it, it I think the ICO was around 60 cents or 70, 80 cents, something like that. And then it, it went down to about 50 cents, 45, 50 cents was low. And it got up as high as around 25 bucks. Right, earlier in the year, and now it's down to $2.60. I mean, it's just got halved again. I mean, it's been getting coming under a lot of prop, uh, pressure. I think there's some bad publicity uh, surrounding what's going on, uh, building out that platform. But if you look at a chart, I mean, this thing looks like there's nothing to stop it from falling back down to $0.50. Cents. I mean, there's nothing there. There's nothing beneath the, you know, the, the current price but a bunch of air. And a lot of these charts, in fact, all these charts look the same way. Right. I mean, there's no support beneath the market other than hope. And you can't build, uh, you know, a base based on hope. But I don't want to spend a lot of time on this uh, podcast on Bitcoin. Uh, It is uh, Hanukkah. And so I I just really want to wrap this podcast up by talking a little bit about the late uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st president of the United States who passed away. Uh, over the weekend. In fact, on Wednesday, the U.S. stock markets will be closed to observe a national day of mourning or of honor to commemorate uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, and and um, so, I want to talk a little bit about about President Bush. And you know, everybody is saying great things about him, which is kind of a, a tradition that we have in America. No matter how much you hate somebody, once they're dead, you love them. And so even the president's critics are going to come out and say uh, good things about him. If they don't have any good things to say, well, they don't say anything at all. And look, George Herbert Walker Bush was clearly an incredible guy. I mean, he had a great life any way you want to look at it. I mean, the guy died, you know, 94 is uh, not a bad, not a bad age to die. He lived a long, healthy life. I mean, he was married to the same woman, Barbara Bush, for 73 years. 73 years. I mean, that is a hell of a successful marriage. Uh, Not many people are going to be able to do that. In fact, that is the longest presidential marriage in history. So there has not been a president who has been married to the same woman for as long as George and Barbara were married. So that's a record. And in fact, he is only the second president in the United States to father a president. Because George Bush's father is george w bush right the 43rd president of the united states the only other president to father a president was john adams he was the second president of the united states right his son was john quincy adams so it hadn't happened in a long time right and who knows if it's going to happen again so i mean he is very accomplished guy and his other son jeb bush you know became a governor of uh of Florida. I mean, potentially he could become president again. I, I don't think he's going to, but I mean, he's, you know, he, it's the possibility is there. Um, but I mean, look, the guy had spent his life uh, in working in government, most of it. I mean, he did spend about 20 years, I think, in the private sector uh, career before he went to Congress, but he was at a young age, he was in World War II. So he served his country in, in the Second World War, and you got to respect him for that. And he was in uh, the CIA. He was an ambassador to the U.N. He was uh, in the House of Representatives and then he was in the Senate. He was a vice president for a couple of terms and then he was president. So he's pretty much occupied all these federal offices. He had a long, uh, you know, career, Um, you know, so I can't take any of that away from him. And he probably was a great dad. You know, and 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 a good uh, you know person, and he was probably a good friend, and he was probably a really really nice guy. I mean, I never met the man, but he certainly lived an exemplary life. But I can't say that I think he was a good president. I mean, he did a good job with the Gulf War. I mean, I'd have to say that that you know, I was initially I didn't I wasn't a big fan of it because I'm never a fan of this type of intervention. But looking back, at least at the Gulf War, and Desert Storm, we went in there, we liberated Kuwait, and we got the hell out, right? We didn't try to nation build, and in fact, we made a profit on that war because we basically used a lot of our, uh, you know, weapons that we had already bought that were sitting there gathering dust, and we exploded them, and then we billed everybody, right? We made all these other countries pay for their share of the cost. So we probably even made a profit— uh, on on the Gulf War. So looking back on it, I mean you know I was probably a little bit more critical because I remember as soon as it started. and I mean I was very young and it's not like I was being critical to anybody. I mean nobody had heard of me and there was no social media back then. So I'm just talking about privately, you know what I would say to friends or family members. and I, I remember I was I was opposed to it in the beginning because I just didn't think we should get involved in, uh, in, in the Middle East. But of all the the involvements that we've had, I mean what he did there was 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 much better than what what his son did uh, with uh, with with Iraq. I mean that the second time we went was a complete disaster. but at least when uh, Herbert Walker Bush went in, I mean it was quick, we got out, we accomplished an objective, and we made a little money in the process. so it, I'd have to give him some credit for that but the the, the big problem I had with Bush was on the domestic policy. And of course, everybody remembers the famous pledge, raise my lips, no new taxes, which basically sunk his reelection. And that's why we got uh, Bill Clinton. So if you, if you don't like the Clintons, well, you, know, you gotta blame Clinton on, on Bush. Because the reason that Clinton is president is because Ross Perot uh, got into the mix and took a lot of the Republican votes away from Bush. And why were a lot of Republicans upset at Bush? Because he broke his pledge and raised taxes. And that really opened up the window for Ross Perot. And I believe that Perot drew a lot more votes away from Bush than he did away from Bill Clinton. And had it just been a two-man race and had um, George Bush not uh, broken his pledge, I think he would have been elected to a second term. And I don't know if Bill Clinton ever would have been president. Who knows what would have happened? But the question is, why did he break his pledge? Because he made a deal with the Democrats and that was a bad deal. And, you know, I get it. Yes, there was deficits back then and people were still concerned about deficits when he was president. I mean, that was um, Ross Perot's entire campaign was based on the debts and the big deficits, and he was going to fix it, right? He was going to get under the trunk of the car and he was going to fix the debt. And and so Bush tried to make a deal with Democrats and of course it didn't work and they raised taxes for no reason. What should have been done is massive spending cuts, but Bush was not a, a small government guy. The, the worst thing that he did, the single worst piece of legislation, and and, and, and for that alone, Right. I, you know, I got to give his presidency a failing grade for that one piece of legislation alone. And that was the Americans with Disabilities Act passed in 1990. I think one of the worst pieces of legislation that was ever passed. Now, a lot of people are going to say, but how can that be? Oh, it's, you know, it's about caring. It's civil rights. I mean, people describe it as a great achievement in civil rights. It is a disaster for individual liberty, is what it was. It was a, it was a destruction of freedom and liberty in the United States, and really just you know cements the, the 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 enormity of our government and the loss of individual liberty and freedom that has taken place over the years. And I am not a non compassionate person when it comes to the disabled, right? And I don't, I think most Americans would go out of their way to help people with disabilities. I mean, I, they do. But that doesn't mean that somebody in a wheelchair has a right to put a gun to my head and force me to help him because he's in a wheelchair. No, he can't do that any more than somebody who's not in a wheelchair can put a gun to my head or anybody's head and force them to do something. But like every government program, the Americans with Disabilities Act has actually hurt Americans with disabilities. You know, before we had the American Disabilities Act, and if you don't know what this act does, it requir- has all kinds of rules and requirements for businesses that they have to provide certain things to disabled people. And there's a wide range of disabilities, which they can con- continuously expand, you know, what ca- you know, you know, qualifies as a disability and, and, and what businesses have to do now by law Uh, To accommodate this. But again, first of all, this is not about civil rights. This is not about a right. This is about a special privilege that is being bestowed on certain individuals. And in order to bestow that privilege, there is a burden, there is a cost that is being imposed on other individuals at the point of a gun. That's what's really going on here. But what the Americans with Disabilities Act does is it says that if you're a business and you have to do all of these things, in order to accommodate uh, disabled customers or disabled employees. And, and so now the costs, number one, of hiring the disabled has skyrocketed. And I think before the Americans with Disabilities Act, if somebody in a wheelchair or somebody with other, some other kind of disability applied for a job, I bet that most employers would really try to accommodate that person. Uh, If they thought they can do the job and there were certain things that they could do to accommodate them, I bet the average employer would go out of his way to do it. If it was reasonable, right, Uh, because, you know, people are, uh, you know, empathetic about the situation, you know, about somebody being unfortunate and they're in they're in a difficult circumstance. And to the extent that you can help out, you know, reasonably, I think most people would do it, but not anymore Oh, no, no. Now it's it's too dangerous. I mean, you see some guy with a disability, you're going to think of a million reasons not to hire him or her or whoever, because you've opened up a massive can of worms that you don't want to open up. I mean, who knows the endless amount of money and costs that you could be forced to expend in order to accommodate this disability. So I think it's a lot harder for people with disabilities to get jobs today than it would have been had we never passed the Americans with Disabilities Act. But, of course, we've also made our industries a lot less competitive. We've made prices go up for everybody. We've disrupted uh, the economy. I mean, I've read about hotels that have to close their swimming pools. They have to fill them up with cement uh, because they, they, they don't want to make them accommodated to wheelchairs. It's too expensive. Not enough people use the pools, so they would rather just destroy the pools. Right. So according to the Americans Disabilities Act, you don't have to have a swimming pool. There's nothing that requires a motel to have a swimming pool. It's just that if you have the swimming pool, it has to be accessible to people in wheelchairs, even if no one in wheelchairs ever stays at your hotel. So the, the final analysis is they have to decide, well, we can't have a swimming pool. Right. And, and most of the people that use swimming pools and motels are little kids, you know. And now if you want to ask, you know, your kids, hey, why did they have to close the the hotel pool. Why did they close the pool? Well, because it wasn't accessible to people in wheelchairs, so they had to close it. Well, it's still not accessible to people in wheelchairs. Correct. But now it's not accessible to anybody else either. So now it's all equal. So as long as nobody can use the swimming pool, then it's okay, which makes no sense whatsoever. You know, they had to close down a lot of miniature golf courses because people in wheelchairs couldn't use the miniature golf courses. I I don't know how many people in wheelchairs are dying to play miniature golf. But do you think that you have a right if you're in a wheelchair? just to demand that every miniature golf course in the country accommodate you? No. Get on the Internet. Find the miniature golf course <laughs> that accommodates wheelchairs, and that's the one you play on. The same thing with hotels. Look, if a hotel wants to have a have a pool that accommodates uh, somebody in a wheelchair, they could do it, and they can advertise, hey, we got a, a wheelchair-accessible swimming pool. Everybody in a wheelchair who wants to swim – Come to our hotel. I mean, they could corner that market, right? And and that's what would happen, right? You can't demand that I'm in a wheelchair and I should just be able to stay at any hotel I want to and demand that that hotel have a swimming pool that I could utilize. I mean, this thing has created cottage industries, right? There are people now who go to restaurants and other businesses, not because they want to eat there, they have no intention of eating there. They're just trying to find reasons to sue the owner. They're they're taking a book and they're and and a, and a ruler and they're measuring every counter, the slope of every parking spot. There's all sorts of rules, and if they find a couple of violations, they shake down the manufacturer or they shake down the owner of the establishment and they force them to pay. It's like it's like legalized extortion. This is going on all over the country. You know the most ridiculous example, and I mentioned this example on uh, on this podcast before, but I'm going to mention it again because a lot of people probably didn't hear it. But a friend of mine uh, owns some commercial real estate. And most of it is in California. And one of his tenants is a Starbucks coffee. And so the Starbucks got sued. And he got sued too because he's the landlord, right? They sue everybody. And the lawsuit was filed on behalf of somebody who was hearing impaired. And the reason he sued is because he went into a Starbucks And Starbucks plays music in the background, right? So you go into Starbucks, and while you're ordering your latte, and if you're going to sit there and you're going to drink your your, your latte, there's some music that you could listen to. But apparently this guy couldn't listen to it because he, he was hearing impaired, and he needed a special hearing aid in order to hear the music. And he demanded that the guy behind the counter furnish him with the hearing aid so that he can wear it. While he was in the Starbucks drinking his coffee because he wanted to listen to the same music that all the other customers who who had good hearing could listen to. And when the the guy working at the Starbucks said that they didn't have that hearing aid. Well, the next thing they had was a lawsuit, because apparently you have to have these hearing aids so that if somebody happens to walk into your restaurant and wants to listen to the music. That you can provide them with this hearing aid. This is complete nonsense. I mean, obviously, they could just turn off the music and that would be fine, right? Then nobody could listen to it, right? So, is this really what the, you know, the disabled want to do is, you know, is rain on everybody's party? Hey, if I can't do it, nobody can do it. But of course, if you have a hearing problem, rather than requiring every single restaurant that you go to that's playing music to provide you with a hearing aid, Buy your own hearing aid and take it with you. I mean, they play music in elevators. you telling me that some guy who's hearing disabled, every time he goes into a building that has an elevator that's playing elevator music, he's got to demand a hearing aid so that he can listen to the music for the one minute he's in the elevator, That that the guy that owns that building has to have a supply of those hearing aids. So that they can listen to it when they go up and down the building. I mean, first of all, I mean, most people would, would don't even want to listen to the elevator music. It's not the greatest music. People are usually annoyed by the elevator music. But according to the American Disability Act, yeah, the business is a guy with a hearing aid. She has to go go to the lobby and say, hey, I want to ride the elevator up. Let me have the hearing aid so I can listen to that music on the way up. Right. But this is ridiculous. This is not freedom. This, is not, this has no place in a free country that every single American businessman has to accommodate all these ridiculous demands. You know, it's so much cheaper if the, if the hearing-impaired person just buys his own hearing aid, buys it once, and takes it everywhere he goes, rather than every single business in the country that plays music has to buy one of these hearing aids, even if no hearing-impaired person ever comes in. Or even if they come in, even if they give a damn. Do you think anybody really cares? Do people really go into Starbucks for the music? Do people ride elevators for the music? No. They go into Starbucks because they want the coffee. All right, the music is playing. Okay, it's secondary to the experience. But now they've got to provide this stuff. Look, none of this is, is civil rights. This is government run amuck, And government ran a much bigger muck under George Bush. This represented a big shift, I think, in the Republican Party where bush bragged about this act this terrible act whereas you know initially barry goldwater was against the civil rights act of 1963. why was he against it he wasn't against the part of the civil rights act that prevented the governments from discriminating he was in favor of that and i and i and i'm in favor of that what he was against was the restrictions on private discrimination, where the government was telling private individuals and private individual business owners what they can and cannot do with their own property. So he stood up against that. There's nobody in the Republican Party left who will stand up for freedom, stand up for liberty or stand up for the Constitution. And one of the reasons is because of George Herbert Walker Bush, because he championed and bragged about this individual liberty destroying Americans with Disabilities Act. You know, would anybody expect a shoe store to carry every shoe in a size 15? Right. No. I mean, are there guys that have size 15 foot? Yeah, they do. Now, that's not considered a disability, at least not yet, right? But if you got a size 15 shoe, you can't expect every shoe store to stock every shoe in, in a size 15 because they would lose a bunch of money. So what do you do if you got big feet? You shop at a big and tall. You shop at stores that actually cater to people with big feet. They're there. You can find those stores or you could go shop online at, you know, I mean, where do the basketball players get their shoes? I mean, they're not getting them at normal shoe stores because there's no money in stocking shoes that are so big that one in a 10,000 people or 100,000 people would actually fit it. Right. The shoe stores want to make money. So for men, they're going to have size eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. That's probably where all the shoes are. If you got extra small or extra big, you got to go to a specialty store. Now, nobody says there's anything wrong with that, right? Well, then the same thing should be true for people with other disabilities, whatever it is. You know, if you're hard of hearing or if you're in a wheelchair, whatever it is, then you find the stores that cater to people with your disability. You can't demand that every single store in the country be accessible to you. You can't demand that every employer Go out of his way to be able to hire you. You just go and work at the companies that have already made the investment in in whatever necessary equipment there is to accommodate whatever need you have. Now, I know people will say, well, is it fair? It's not fair. Why shouldn't people with disabilities be able to go into every single restaurant and every single hotel and every single business just like people who don't have disabilities? And you know what? Yeah, it's not fair. Life isn't fair. Nothing about life is fair. Even John Kennedy famously said, life isn't fair, even though he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. But look, he died at a young age, right? I mean, nothing about life is fair. It's not fair that some people have really big feet, but that doesn't mean that you can force every shoe store to carry those big feet. Look, people are born ugly. People are born dumb. People are born into poverty. I mean, there are all sorts of things. People, some people get lucky and some people get unlucky. Some people are born with great talents. Some people don't have any talent, right? It's not fair, okay? But it's not about making things fair. Government is not there to make things fair. That's not why we have government, right? It's not about trying to equalize stuff or make things fair. Governments are simply there to secure our liberties. That's it. At least that's why our government is here, to secure our individual liberties and our inalienable rights. It's not to level playing fields or make things fair. But when the government tries to make everything fair, then you know it destroys economic freedom, our individual freedom and liberty, and the economy. And so collectively, we are all worse off as a result of government trying uh, to, to, to do this. And of course, anybody who... Is objecting to the American Disabilities Act oh you're you're a mean person you're a heartless person you don't care about uh the people with disabilities that's not what it means I care about those people as much as the next person but I also care about the Constitution I also care about individual liberty I also care about freedom and that's what other people don't care about but then I also understand that this is backfiring Just like all government well-intentioned programs backfire, I think that disabled people are actually worse off as a result of this act. So not only do we destroy individual liberty and freedom and the Constitution to enact the Americans with Disabilities Act, but we actually make the disabled worse. So what's the winner? Who wins? The only winner is government. Government gets bigger. Government gets more powerful. So if you believe in big, powerful government, well, then you can be a fan of the Americans with Disabilities Act. But if you believe in limited government, freedom, and prosperity, then this is a terrible act. And you have to really be upset at, at George Herbert Walker Bush for having signed this bill. And not only signed it, but proudly signed it. Proclaimed it as a great accomplishment. He should have vetoed this bill and, and, and had he done that, then my, uh, you know, my assessment of him as a president would be far greater. And I'm not going to, you know, change my mind uh, just because he passed away. He lived a great long life. And uh, I hope I'm as fortunate. Uh, but just because he's dead doesn't mean I'm going to suddenly turn him into a saint and say everything that he did uh, uh, was good uh, when he, he he did a lot of things particularly the American Disabilities Act, that I think was incredibly bad.